Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Sir Alan Lane, original name Alan Lane Williams, was a 20th century pioneer of paperback publishing in England, whose belief in a market for high quality books at low prices helped create a new reading public and also led to improved printing and binding techniques. Sir Alan was born in Bristol. His mother was Camilla Lane from a North Devon farming family and his father was Samuel Williams, who was a Welsh town planner Sir Alan studied at Bristol's grammar school, but it didn't suit him, and he left when he was 16 to become an apprentice to his uncle. Although his formal education was sparse, he demonstrated good taste and intelligence early in his career, which would eventually lead to him being knighted in 1952 for his services to publishing. He started his apprenticeship at the publishing house Bodley Head in 1919, which was owned by his uncle and founder, John Lane. Lane's mother arranged for her son and John Lane to meet. The publisher was so taken with Alan, he offered him a place in his company, on condition that he and the rest of the family, including Alan's father, changed their name from Williams to Lane. So Alan Williams became Alan Lane. Word of the Week I've chosen this week's word because I've just collected my daughter from a camping trip she went on with some friends and I know they had some of these. Marshmallow Now, marshmallow got its name from the mallow plant which grows on marshland or near large bodies of water. The thick, sticky sap inside the plant has long been used for medicinal purposes to help sore throats. But the ancient Egyptians used to mix it with nuts and honey to produce a confection. And in the 19th century, French sweetmakers would make the sap and whip it up with sugar, almost like a meringue. The modern marshmallow now doesn't use extract from the mallow plant. Instead, it uses gelatin. 
So, I hear you cry, why did Alan's whole family have to change their surname? Well, you see, John Lane and his wife Annie had no children, and very soon it became apparent that Alan, along with his two brothers, Dick and John, would become the heirs to John Lane's company, Bodley Head, thus keeping it in the family. In his diary of that year, Alan wrote, I left school April 11th, and then I started work April 27th. John Lane was an eminent publisher in his day, and had founded Bodley Head in the 1890s, publishing such authors as Aubrey Beardsley, Anatole France, and Oscar Wilde. In fact, the butler in The Importance of Being Earnest is called Lane, supposedly as an intended insult, as John Lane was notoriously mean, about paying his authors. He may not have been that enthusiastic about school, but he took to his new role really well. He was a natural and thoroughly enjoyed it. He wrote home often and in one letter said, The work is not half so hard as school works. He was also excited to be in London, especially during the Peace Day Parade in July 1919, which celebrated the Germans signing the Treaty of Versailles. The tanks were awfully good. So were the motor lorries and the guns, searchlights, pigeons, mortars, etc. He said in a letter he wrote to his parents the following Monday. He also gave them this bit of advice. When the film comes to Bristol, be sure to take the kids. The opportunity won't occur again until after the next war. Alan Lane started his career by running errands, writing letters and supervising the loading and unloading of stock. He proved himself to be very reliable and was gradually entrusted with a decision-making role. He made contacts throughout the publishing world and at every level in it, which proved invaluable later on. And it was only six years after he started that his uncle died in 1925, and so Alan became the managing director. At the time, Bodley Head was finding it difficult to compete with more aggressive publishing firms who had established lists of writers. And so with his two brothers, Richard and John, and £500 in capital, some raised from his parents remortgaging their house, he started Penguin Books and soon resigned from Bodley. The venture got off to a slow start, but within 25 years, Sir Alan had become a millionaire. Word on the street. This week we're off to Whittington Road in BS16 Bristol. The Whittingtons were a prominent local family from the 17th century onwards, and many are buried in Bitten Church. It has been suggested that there was a family connection with Richard Whittington, you know, Dick Whittington, thrice Mayor of London, who came from Hamswell, Cold Ashton, just a few miles from Bristol. I mentioned earlier how Alan had made some connections within the publishing business, and one of the most famous was Agatha Christie, with whom he developed a personal friendship when he first joined his uncle's publishing firm, Bodley Head. She had come to discuss a complaint she had about an unsuitable book jacket for murder on the links. 
Christie's first impression of Alan Lane was that of a vigorous youth. She later described him as... Someone very much alive, stretching out towards life and exhibiting a gaiety and friendliness that was almost immediately endearing. They quickly became friends, and over the years she met his brothers and also became a regular visitor to his family home. Christie also praised Alan as a devoted family man with great kindness and compassion, and one who loved life, and finally, when he became ill years later, accepted his fate bravely. And she said that he was... A brave man, and I think for most of his life, a happy one. Now here's a rather interesting part of our tale. The legend goes that on a train journey back from visiting Agatha Christie in 1934, Lane found himself on an Exeter station platform with nothing available worth reading. He then thought of the idea of paperback editions of popular quality books, which would be cheap enough to be sold from a vending machine. And so the first setup was outside Henderson's in Charing Cross Road and was nicknamed the Penguin Cubator. Lane was also well aware of the Hamburg publisher Albatross Books and adopted many of their innovations. Most booksellers and authors were against the idea of paperbacks at the time. They believed paperbacks would result in individuals spending less money on books. Lane, though, was a person that was very stubborn when it came to his company and thrived on innovation and challenges. So once he decided on creating paperbacks, he started deciding what the books would look like and finding a name. He had decided that the books would be reprints, so he also needed to approach other publishers to see if they and their authors would be willing to sublease the rights of the books. He was quoted as saying, I have never been able to understand why cheap books should not also be well designed, for good design is no more expensive than bad. So to start off with, he looked for 12 good books, and the sympathetic British publisher, Jonathan Cape, let him have 10, including works by Hemingway, Morois and Compte Mackenzie. The books were sold for the same price as 10 cigarettes, or sixpence each. Edward Young, the then office boy, designed the horizontal bands and used the font Gil Sans Bold for the titles. Alan then said to him, Nip up to the zoo, Ted, and do some sketches. And so, Edward went to the zoo in Regent's Park to sketch penguins for the cover. Alan wanted a cover design that was consistent and easily recognisable. There have been many variations of the penguin over the years, but the favourite is the one where the penguin is bowing slightly to the right and is affectionately called Little Crinkle Belly. It was in 1937 that the font changed to Times New Roman. His pelican books were non-fictions. Penguins were meant to entertain while pelicans were meant to enlighten. In fact, in later years, he would have three penguins in his office, a penguin figure on his desk, one on his inkwell and another peering over his shoulder. He even asked London Airport if they could paint a penguin on one of their huge radar scanners, which he could see from his office window. Demand for penguin books was slow at first until Woolworths started selling them. Initially, though, Woolworths weren't that bothered 
thinking the general public wouldn't be interested in reading the works of authors such as Shelley, until the wife of the buyer walked into the meeting accidentally and found the whole idea amazing. And so, the first penguins went on a Woolworth counters on the Friday morning before the bank holiday, and in the afternoon, the buyer was ringing Lane up with an order that would take him the rest of the year to fulfil. After that, the bookshops which hadn't been enthusiastic about stocking them thought again. And by 1937, more than a hundred titles had been reprinted as Penguins. Then came Penguin Specials and Penguin Classics, which confirmed his respect for learning and his business instinct that had gambled on mass demand for good books. Before Penguins, the bulk of the paperbacks were pulp novels. War broke out in September 1939. Although his brothers, Dick and John, served in the Navy, Alan was allowed to stay on Civvy Street to look after the company. By another fluke of luck, a penguin book fitted neatly into the breast pocket of an army uniform. It's often said that the worst part of being at war is not just the fear, but the terrible boredom. And maybe penguins did its part in alleviating this. During the war, Paper was rationed, which affected the print runs for many publishers. But somehow, Alan managed to arrange to have the same quantity of paper delivered as before the war, and so sell more books to the forces, who really wanted something to read. Tragically, his brother John was killed in a convoy in the Mediterranean in 1942, and it's said that Alan never really got over this. In the 1950s, Penguin had grown so much that it had major outposts in both Australia and the United States. But Lane's management style put him and the individuals in charge in his United States office at odds. These individuals eventually left Penguin Books and started their own publishing companies, Bantam Books and the New American Library. Penguin's bestseller, undoubtedly, was D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chesley's Lover, with more than 3.5 million copies sold, and it was Lane who was responsible for the decision to publish an uncensored edition. Lady Chatterley's Lover was published in 1960, after the court decided at a long, well-publicised trial at the Old Bailey that it was not obscene or corrupting. In 1965, Tony Godwin a chief editor at Penguin, bought a book of Sign's drawings for the company. Sign was a French political cartoonist and his work is noted for its anti-capitalism, anti-clericalism, anti-colonialism, anti-Semitism and archaism. Several booksellers at the time refused to stock his work. Alan wasn't keen either. He took offence to the obscenity of the drawings. Godwin refused to back down and put his book to the vote at the editorial board, they backed him against Alan. So one night, a month later, Alan and a long-serving member of the warehouse staff loaded all the books into a van, drove them out to one of his farms, and burnt the lot of them. He then sacked Godwin. Lane retained control of Penguin, but was forced to retire shortly afterwards after being diagnosed with bowel cancer. Throughout his life, he had a love of Devon and would often visit family on his mother's side. In his later years, after he separated from his wife, 
he would spend more time there. He could often be found in the local pub, just chatting. Talking to a group of labourers one evening, he asked them about their work. The forestry firm which employed one of them, he learnt had recently planted up to five 20 to 30 acre plots nearby with commercial conifers. And so he arranged with the forester to see one of these plots the next day and promptly brought all five without even viewing the others. So whenever he was in Devon after that, he would call on the forester and ask to be shown around one of these woods. He watched them grow and on his deathbed, the last time he saw his sister, he asked her to take photographs of his woods the next time she was in the southwest and send them to him. But he was dead before she got there. He died on the 7th of July 1970 in Northwood, Middlesex. He was 67 years old. On his death, his ashes were interred alongside Uncle John's in the graveyard of an austere and ancient monastery church near Heartland Point on the North Devon coast. The woods in Devon were all sold to pay death duties, but one of his daughters brought them back when they moved to the village in the mid-70s. There, they set up an educational charity which allows inner-city children to spend time on a working farm. In the house where they stay, there's a quiet room where there are books and comfortable chairs. There's also a portrait of Alan on the wall in there at one time, though it's now gone to Bristol Grammar, where he went to school. The Alan Lane Foundation was formed in 1966, with the trustee deed signed on the 14th of March. The trust was set up with 100,000 shares in Penguin, valued at around £150,000. There were three trustees and a broad remit for funding. Trustees met three times a year and made small grants to small projects across the country. And the foundation was keen to ensure that its small grants made the best effect and in the most constructive way. It aimed to make a lasting difference in the lives of people it helped to support. And over the years, trustees developed a policy of funding projects which were deemed unpopular in society. In addition to its general grant making, the Foundation has in the past funded some particular programmes of work, including support for penal reform and women's projects in the Republic of Ireland. It has also made some larger scale grants for specific work on a national scale. Previously located in London and then Bracknell for the past 23 years, the Foundation's offices have been moved to York. You probably think you're pretty good at multitasking behind the wheel. I mean, you have to multitask to drive. So what's wrong with checking your phone? The thing is, your brain simply doesn't work. Even a quick look at the a quick reply affects your concentration and makes you less able to react to hazards. If you use a mobile phone while driving, you're four times more likely to crash. Think. Put your phone away. In the news today, a man was overheard on the bus in Bristol saying, as I was getting into bed, she said, you're drunk. I said, how do you know? She said, you live next door. 
Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 10th of June 1829 when we saw the first boat race between the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge taking place on the Thames in London. On the 11th of June 1770, British explorer Captain James Cook runs aground on the Great Barrier Reef. The 12th of June 1942, German-born Jew Anne Frank receives a diary for her 13th birthday. She described everyday life from her family hiding place in an Amsterdam attic. One of the most discussed Jewish victims of the Holocaust, she gained fame posthumously with the 1947 publication of The Diary of a Young Girl. Her family were arrested by the Gestapo on the 4th of August, 1944. Following their arrest, the Franks were transported to concentration camps. On the 1st of November, 1944, Anne and her sister Margot were transferred from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where they died, probably of typhus, a few months later. They were originally estimated by the Red Cross to have died in March, with Dutch authorities setting 31st of March as the official date. Later research has suggested they died in February or early March. Otto, the only survivor of the Frank family, returned to Amsterdam after the war to find that Anne's diary had been saved by his female secretaries, Mieb Gies and Beb Voskel. He decided to fulfil Anne's greatest wish to become a writer and publish her diary in 1947. On the 13th of June 1981, at the Trooping of the Colours ceremony in London, a teenager, Marcus Sargent, fires six blank shots at Queen Elizabeth II. On the 14th of June 1949, Albert II, a rhesus monkey, rides a V2 rocket to an altitude of 134 kilometres or 83 miles high, making him the first mammal and first monkey in space. On the 15th of June, 1667, the first human blood transfusion is administered by Dr. Jean-Baptiste Denis. Also on the 15th of June, but in 1996, American jazz, swing, pop and blues singer, known as the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald, dies from a stroke at 78. And lastly, on the 16th of June, 1904, Irish author James Joyce begins a relationship with Nora Barnacle, who subsequently uses the date to set the actions for his novel Ulysses. This date is now traditionally called Bloomsday. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of this week's podcast, but I hope you enjoyed the tale of the man behind... A publishing house that has changed many lives all over the world. And I'd like to take a moment to thank those who brought today's story to life. And this week we have Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Sam Roberts from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you for making this show what it is. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at 
Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.